Episode 29 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with Darren Burgess, who is the Director of High Performance at Arsenal. It was great to have Darren on the podcast. He came on to talk about a number of different things, including what views of his have changed the most throughout his career, the biggest mistakes he's made and what he's learned from them. He also spoke about, and I asked him what common traits he sees across some of the world-class players that he's, he's worked with and then also what are some strategies that he uses with players that other coaches may look at and see as not optimal but it works within his environment and has worked within the environments that he's worked in and um, also he spoke about um, his RPE scale so how he uses RPE and how he uses what he calls his, his Burjo rating for session and session intensity. So like I said, it was great to have Darren on the podcast um, to get someone with his expertise, his knowledge and his experience was amazing. It was great to chat with him and um, I hope you enjoyed the episode with Darren. Welcome to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Darren Burgess, who is the Director of High Performance at Arsenal. Darren, thanks a lot for coming on. No worries, Ben. Happy to be here. It's great to have someone like yourself on the podcast and get um, draw from your experiences in uh, your career so far. I've, uh, I've been enjoying the, the podcast, mate. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to, to hopefully contribute, it and contribute to it and entertain the people out there. Awesome. Well, can you um, can you kick us off, mate? Can you take us through your career so far and up to your current role? Yeah, I'll, I'll be really brief. Um, but uh, I I just started off in in the A League in Australian football before it was the A League. Um, it was called the National Soccer League, and uh, did some work there with with a team called Parramatta Power uh, for a couple of years while I was lecturing. Um, at university so that was a pretty busy period I worked for the Sydney Swans in the AFL basically putting out cones and and running rehab sort of pool sessions and things like that Uh, then I was lucky enough to get a job at um, uh, Port Adelaide in the AFL which was my first sort of full-time job in the industry um, in the applied industry I was 28 I reckon it was Um, Worked there for a few years, then got uh, a job with the Australian uh, football team and, and Football Federation Australia and worked with them up until the 2010 World Cup. Uh, straight from Johannesburg, I went to Liverpool and was head of fitness and conditioning there um, uh, and did the best part of three years at Liverpool. Then went back to Australia, for back to the AFL and back to my old club, Port Adelaide, and, and um was uh, head of high performance there and um, thought I'd probably stay there forever and, and then um, found myself back over here with Arsenal uh, in 2000. Well, it was basically my second season um, with Arsenal, so I've been here for uh, 20 months now. So uh, along the way, um, probably a couple of things that, I, that are, are worthy of mention. I did my PhD. It's a three-year PhD that took me nine years because I was doing it uh, while I was working. Uh, and I did that on talent development in um, in team sports, uh, focusing mainly on football and and Australian rules football. And probably the other thing that uh, I was talking to Dave Carolyn uh, the other day about, which is sort of worthy to mention, particularly to young fitness coaches out there, 
we were sort of lamenting the fact that in in those early days without GPS and heart rate, you you were just everything. So for my first couple of jobs, it was just me and up to 45 players doing the strength, doing the gym, ordering their food, um, doing the conditioning and warming up and strapping and the whole bit. So, um, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much the um, the summary of it anyway. Now your ears must have been burning yesterday because I recorded an episode with Dave. And uh, so it would be the, the episode before yours. And uh, we had a great chat about he's obviously just been down to visit you guys, hasn't he, down in yes, uh, down at Yep. Um, and he spoke about the the strength of his network and obviously you you being part of that and, and the fact that um, him using this time in his career where he could come and visit your club and, and the importance of having a network like that. So can you touch on that and give your views on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a, a, a couple of different points on that. Uh, the network is really important and sometimes it can be a bit of a dirty word in in football um, and and in strength and conditioning in general, um, and guys like Brett, Brett Bartholomew have kind of led the way in in suggesting that you should um, develop yourself a network. And people think it's sucking up or um, you know trying to get jobs and things like that. It's not. It's it's absolutely an exchange of ideas. So Dave, to his immense credit, has found himself out of work and has spent the last three months just. Uh, at his own expense, just going and and visiting different places and and talking to people, and without um, building that network over time, the, no one you know he wouldn't be able to do that. So he wouldn't be able to, to uh, learn different things and go to different practices like he has done. So I think it's really important um, to to expand your network and develop it, and and not for any other reason other than to to share ideas. It's um, one of the things that are also really impressive um, about Dave and others, and um, I guess in the early days um, when the A-League or the National Soccer League in Australia disbanded, I, I went and delivered pizzas, and while I was doing that, just went and volunteered for the local football team um, to be their fitness coach. And they said, yeah, yeah, we'd, you know, we'd like to have you. Didn't get paid or didn't get anything like that, but went and spent three nights a week um, volunteering for them just to keep my skills sharp while the a, while I was out of work and the A League was was getting formed. So I'm not saying that to say oh, how wonderful uh, that was, but it's just the type of thing that you kind of have to do in our industry. And um, and Dave's a really good example of that. And and there are plenty of others who um, try and get themselves a network. Not again, not to get jobs or suck up to people, but to um, you know to exchange information and. And not be too proud to ask information, and not be too proud to to go and work for your local under thirteens or under fourteens. And I think that's a it's a really important lesson, and one which we we both spoke to one of the sports scientists at Arsenal about, and he just was flabbergasted that Dave had to order food, and that you know we periodised based on time and coaches' rating of the session rather than uh, heart rate or GPS or RPEs, you know, because they weren't really around 15, 20 years ago. So um, so it's a really good lesson. And what's your advice? I, I actually asked um, Dave the same question, but what's your advice? When, you, when you're when you in um, a role like you are right now and you're in a busy period of the season and games are coming thick and fa- fast, you're having to travel um, all over the country and, and all over Europe as well, what's your advice on um, either maintaining a network or growing your network 
it's pretty hard to do in in this position at this time of year. So, um, uh, you know, but I'll give you an example. Dave came came to Arsenal um, two days ago. Uh, we have um, we had the McLaren guys from McLaren come in today. Uh, I'm going out to Eton College next week. If if it's important to you, you'll find time. So. Um, most people nowadays listen to podcasts and if I heard somebody on your podcast that I really liked, you all will always put their Twitter handle or their email address and while you're on a bus, um, while you're waiting at an airport, while you're, um, I shouldn't say this, but sitting at traffic lights or something like that, you could always just reach out and say, wouldn't mind catching up, um, love the podcast, let's let's make contact. Um Anytime you're in London, come and look me up. It's it's a pretty easy thing to do. It doesn't have to be a really big long email. Probably one thing that that uh, I guess the younger strength coaches and and fitness coaches should be aware of is if you're reaching out to someone like Dave or you know Tony Strudwick or Mike Boyle or you know guys that have been around for a while, they're not always going to have time to have a coffee and and give up you know, an hour and a half of their time just to chat and, and help you out. I know that sounds really harsh and it's something that, again, when when Brett Bartholomew th- first mentioned, I thought that's pretty harsh. But in in uh, the, the jobs that, that those guys are in, they're pretty hectic and they're pretty time-consuming. So certainly maintain the network but um, and, and introduce yourself and say if you're ever in this part of the world or can I come down and watch a session and – very rarely are we going to say no. Um, uh, it might not be that after the session I'll have three hours to sit down and talk about periodization and and uh, and whatever else you might want to talk about. Um, but certainly coming down, watching a session, spending time at the academy, spending time with any of the staff, um, that's pretty easily done. Certainly sending an email or a, a message over Twitter or Instagram or something like that is is 30 seconds work to maintain your network. So you can do it um, and just don't be shy. There's one thing John Noonan mentioned in the episode that I did with him as well, that he said that instead of just reaching out to people and trying to um, maybe just take from one side, you actually offer something as well. So whether that just be going down and helping out with with carrying kit or whatever it was, like he, he said, if you offer something out, then you'll get things back. Yeah, we have a policy at Arsenal, which we've been a bit loose with this year, but last year we were a lot better, is if people come to us, and, and I remember going to, going to Manchester United in 2006, and Tony Strudwick said, mate, if you're going to come here, give us a presentation on something. You guys are down in Australia doing some good work in GPS, so give me a presentation on that. And so I thought that was brilliant. Um, and so we've been doing that here at Arsenal. We did that at, at Liverpool when I was there. If people want to come in and... And it can be a 10-minute thing or we might ask them a 45-minute presentation on what you think we could use. So I'm not going to say give me a presentation on uh, the benefits of the ketogenic diet or anything like that. I'm going to say be a bit creative and that's your chance to give us 25, 30 minutes of a presentation on what you can do. So I agree with John. It's a great, great option and something that we've, we've done a lot. Um, I know Dave will be listening to this, so he gave us absolutely bugger all when he came. 
uh, <laughs> other than some good stories. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a great philosophy. And what um, what are some of the views, Darren, that have changed across your uh, across your career so far? Probably the big one, and uh, and it took me a while to come around to it. If I'm honest, Dan, is is the softer skills. Uh, when I say softer skills, I don't necessarily mean you know, being friends with the players and that sort of thing. I mean um, the softer science. So the data that you're collecting isn't everything. In my early days. Um, luckily in Australia, you know, the GPS devices came out there pretty much before anywhere else and um, I was one of the early adopters because of my PhD and, um, but I would obsess over it. If someone did a hamstring and they were spending a minute more than their average in the distance between 10 and 11 kilometres per hour, I'd thought I'd cured hamstring injuries and I would literally obsess over every GPS, even though they were barely one hertz GPS, and you may as well guess, um, it was. Uh, I obsessed over data. I obsessed over RPE. We took bloods. We did everything. This is back in two thousand and four and five, and I thought I had the answer to everything by the data. So over time, I've realised, and 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 over a, um, a period of time, visiting different sports and different athletes and different people, I've realised that. Yep, the data is really, really important, and if I hadn't immersed myself in it, um, I probably wouldn't be able to come out the other side and suggest that the art is just as important. So I'm certainly not dismissing the, the data or the, the science and the research, but the art and the years of experience and knowing individual players, knowing individual coaches and ability to get the message across is just as important, if not more important. So that's probably the biggest lesson. The other one is is recovery is very much overrated, um, which is a bit controversial and people have made pretty good careers out of out of uh, recovery. Um, when I say it's overrated, I don't mean to ignore it, but I mean you really do need to tailor your recovery to your team, to your athlete and, and, and to the situation. And sometimes doing no recovery is just as good as, as uh, you know, 10 minutes in an ice bath at um, – eight degrees followed by a half an hour massage followed by wearing compression socks followed by um you know in the in the morning doing some hydrotherapy and being really precise sometimes giving people some time off is just as effective so they're probably two big things that i've learned and changed my opinion on uh, uh, over the journey there's probably about 15 more as well that i could think of if 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 we had time <laughs> and when we we were lucky enough to have Tom um, Tom Allen present at our Villa Park Network meeting, he spoke about um, some of the data that you guys collect and, and look at with the players. But then he summed um, the presentation up by basically saying a lot of it comes down to the rela- relationship with the players, and like you mentioned just before, like the softer skills. Um, and I've heard you speak before as well about uh, all the data that is available, but you actually just simply looking at a session and judging how hard it is and then um, using that as a monitoring tool as well. So I thought that was really fascinating. Can you, can you touch on that? Yeah, Tom, Tom's fantastic and he, he and I have very healthy debates and I'll, I was probably as adamant about my ideas as Tom is now in the, in the early days and, and so Tom and I meet every morning and he comes in and says the data says this and then we have a discussion and talk about 
okay, if the data says that, but what about the practicalities of resting, you know, Mesut Ozil from a, from a training session when the coach really needs him for a tactical session and then we sort of discuss and debate and, and then come up with a, with a plan. So Tom's, Tom's great like that in terms of presenting the data, but, but yeah, the, the combination of us allows us to, to look at the art as well as the science. But probably since 2002, to answer your question, Ben, I've been rating each session that I've done. So I've had 16 years of, uh, if you like, a Burjo rating of the session. So it's kind of my own RPE. And people, uh, a lot of times, particularly, um, you know, in, in areas and industries where there's not, not as much money, they're always saying, oh, I can't afford a heart rate, can't afford a GPS. Yeah, you can still do some monitoring. And one that I've used and continue to use is this score that I rate the session. So as an example, we went to Dubai with Arsenal um, a week and a half ago in the international break, and it, it was upwards of 35 degrees um, over there. And if we did a 5K session with 500 high speed and maybe 100 zone 6 and a bunch of change of direction, in London, when it's 10 degrees, 12 degrees, that might get a Burjo score of, of uh, to use Tom's ver- uh, name for it, um, of five or six because it's a pretty easy session. But you do that in 35 degrees and it suddenly becomes eight or nine and a really hard session. If it's snowing, if you've just come off travel, if you've just changed time difference, um, if you know that if you've just come off a really bad loss against Tottenham and none of the players want to train, all those factors you can you can factor into it, whereas the GPS only takes into account what the player produces. So you're factoring all those things. And I can tell your listeners are saying, yeah, but that's what RPE does. Yes, RPE does do that, but um, that's if you completely trust the players. Um, and the players are an extremely well-educated group, then RPE can do that. It doesn't always do that, but it can do that. So, um, yeah, that's a score that I've been using and monitoring off and judging recovery sessions and training loads off for 16, 17 years now and and, uh, even some of the stats stuff that we've done at Arsenal and did at Liverpool and at Port Adelaide um, when we did some analysis, that – that scoring system came up pretty strongly compared to RPEs and high speed and, and some of the objective markers. So you can do it for sure without the technology. Do you think that's a case of the technology? Uh, I don't want to say it has been like a negative, but when people aren't watching the session and, and as focused on what the players are actually doing and looking more at, at laptops, at, sp- at spreadsheets and all the rest of it, do you think that's taken away from the sort of, um, I suppose, like the old school coaching that we would have had years ago. Yeah, it's a great point. And um, I will never, ever employ, for example, I'll never, ever employ a sports scientist who doesn't go out to the session and at least watch. Um, Even if we've got live GPS, we've got cameras at Arsenal that, you know, you can, you don't have to go out to the session. None of the analysts go out to the session now because they can control the cameras from inside and it's, you know, it's the UK, so it's the weather's not fantastic, so it's a pretty good reason to stay indoors. But for sports scientists, you have to go out and watch the session. You cannot 
just judge a session by the numbers. That it's just a horrible trend that that we've gotten ourselves into because we have the data and we have the GPS, so we think we can make assumptions based on that. Um, so I absolutely agree with you, Ben. You you have to go out and watch the session, and therefore it's the combination. Um, and you're also developing relationship with coaches, with pitch side physios, with kit men, with groundskeepers, with all those sort of things, which are really important at football clubs as well. And one thing I wanted to ask you, Darren, with your experience with, I mean, some of the players you're working with at the moment, but also some of the players you worked with at both Australia and Liverpool, what are some of the, the traits or possibly like daily habits that, that are common amongst some of the world-class players you've worked with? Do you know what? I reckon the, the most, no one's ever asked me that, but the most common trait for me would be training intensity. That is, that is easily the most uh, common trait amongst world-class players in any sport that I've been lucky enough to either watch um, or, or be working in. And, you know, without sort of name-dropping, all, all the big players that I've been lucky enough to work with and, and work for, they all have that. And even the players that get bad raps in the media about um, work rate on field and attitude and, and all those sorts of things, they have always had that same, they're ultra competitive and therefore losing a game of 5v5 is almost, I won't say the same, but almost the same as losing a Premier League game on the weekend. So um, your ability to, to train as you play, so the gap between your training and your playing, um, yeah, is, is very, very little. So that would be the common trait. And, and that's something that, again, I learned a little bit trying to tell players to calm down a little bit when I thought that they'd done too much work or too many high-speed sprints or, you know, it's asking a competitive player to not chase the ball or not chase the opponent because you're worried about too many sprints. I mean, it's just a, a, an outrageous thing. So um, what that might be doing from potentially a injury point of view is taking away from a performance and an attitudinal thing. So um, I would say that training intensity. You think that's that's obviously in the role like you're in. That's the the job, isn't it, to to let them train at that intensity, but then control the the load the rest of the time, isn't it? So they can maintain that all the time. Yeah, hundred percent. And you you want to be able to talk to coaches and managers and 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 other other sort of fitness and medical staff about it's not it's not going to hurt this guy or girl to to train at this intensity what we need to do if they're going to work at that intensity is is you know adjust the volume and periodize the volume and and maybe follow up that drill with a uh, a more tactical based drill or something like that and that's the art of i guess building a building a session and building a periodized plan um but you want the players going flat out as often as possible because it's the old theory of make training hard so the games are easy and what, what about away from the pitch? So is there any um, habits that you'd see that are common away from the pitch? Yeah, you're sort of tempted to say um, that it's, you know, they're, 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 they're 24-hour athletes and they're, um, they're obsessing over the game and obsessing over their data, but that's not the case. The, the, the ones that are really, truly talented and the ones that are, for every 
sort of one player that has obsessed over their resting heart rate at night and wear an Apple Watch or a Fitbit so they can do everything completely perfectly. There's probably three that aren't. So uh, I, w- I would say there's a healthy level of curiosity amongst those players away from, amongst the really elite performers away from the um, away from the pitch. So they want to know their information, but not always too much information. It's amazing the WhatsApp messages I get after games now um, from players wanting to know their um, their outputs before the, they get put up the next day. They're, there's almost a direct correlation between that and the and the really elite performers. Um, so there's a healthy amount of curiosity without the obsession over it. Um, and, and probably probably the one trait is when something's pointed out, they act on it. So by that I mean if their body fat scores or their DEXA scores are slightly high, they don't just laugh it off and say that's not important. If If you're coming to them with something that you think is important, then they'll act on it. So even the ones who are, um, you know, maybe a little bit more lazy or a little bit more naturally talented, if you go to them and say, listen, you're probably having too many carbs in your diet, you need to periodize your, your carbohydrate intake, then they'll do it. And so that, that's probably as, as common a trait as any away from, the, away from the pitch. And the 24-hour athlete is, is quite a – it's an interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? Because I think – like you mentioned before, if you overly obsess on certain elements like sleep and food and all the rest of it, then it be, can sort of do the reverse, can't it? It can become quite unhealthy and too stressful for the player, whereas they do need that that downtime as well. Yeah, it's 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 like in in society in general, why diets invariably fail because you keep telling people, "I can't, I can't, I can't." It's a negative mindset. It's negative energy all the time. So. Um, telling players you must, you must, you must. It, uh, otherwise, you'll you'll get injured unless you wear compression at night. You'll get injured unless you get eight hours sleep at night. You'll get injured unless you. No, that's that's just not true. So, um, I, I think that players need a release, um, particularly in football, where at at the level over here, the the, the scrutiny that they're under. Not only that, but uh, you could argue over a season. And over a heavy, you know, we, we've got a, a fixture period coming up over the next uh, two and a half, three weeks that I've never been exposed to in all my in my 22 years doing this. Um, so certainly over this period, the players' robustness and fitness will be tested. But in any one game, fitness will rarely determine a, a winner or a loser in any one game. Over a season, over a heavy fixture period, yes, it will. So giving the players that out. Um, after a good win or when there's a bit of a break in between games or um, I, I think that's really important. So what what does your focus come on to down in a period like this? Obviously you're about to go into a, a really busy period but where does your focus lie or does it is it similar just throughout the season? Yeah, it's, a, it's probably a bit more this, this period. We, we go just to give you and your listeners, um, uh, uh, anybody who's listening, a, a little bit of a, an idea. We, we go Sunday uh, away, Thursday away, uh, Monday away, Thursday at home, Sunday at home, Wednesday away um, in, in, you know, just 
some really interesting fixture uh, timings from the Premier League for us. Um, so in that period, what we're and, and leading up to that period, what we're trying to do is is make sure that the players are prepared for that. Now, the temptation is to give them as little training as possible leading into it, so they're nice and fresh. But then the first that first Sunday, Thursday, Sunday period then just creates way too big a spike in their training load. So we actually work on individually who hasn't had um, much of a spike, much of a hit in their in their training. So we'll go through the data myself and Tom and Chad and the team will go through the, the data and say, right, this particular player didn't play during the international break, so he needs a game load here to prepare him for three game weeks in case they in case the the, um, uh, the manager picks him. So it's more about making sure that their training load is appropriate leading into it. In between the games, it's, of course, a recovery focus and, and really keeping a, um, a focus on the training load in between. But that kind of takes care of itself with with games every three days. The training load kind of takes care of itself. So... Um, Again, it's individually, can we get a hit in players after games or do we wait till the next day? Do we have to get on a flight and get straight back to London so that we can't do it after games? What does that mean for the next day? It's, it's a real individual focus over the next three weeks on making sure that each individual has got an appropriate amount of um, condition in them according to their position. And it's one thing that um, Tom Little did a an episode with us and he talked about the microcycle and how important it is in football because of situations like that um, exact situation you're talking about there, a busy period and you need to constantly be tweaking things and, and changing the approach slightly and that's that's basically the um, the focus throughout the season, isn't it? It's, it's controlling that microcycle and you can have longer plans in place but they do need to be adjustable and uh, flexible. Yeah, absolutely, and also they need to be. Um, uh, you need to be flexible with your players. So, as an example, you know, if if we have a, I don't know, a French international who uh, hasn't been picked for a couple of weeks in a row, and you know, you know that they need a high speed or a zone six hit, and it's pouring down with rain, and they didn't get on when they thought they'd get on, and. Um, you know, you've got to read that play and you've got to, um, A, have a relationship with the player, but also uh, read the play in terms of do you take that guy out who might see that extra 15 minutes of conditioning as a humiliation or as a, um, you know, rubbing salt into the into the wound of not being picked? Do you do that or can you work out a, a compromise where the next day they come in and do it when their their head might be in a little bit better headspace, even though that means you coming in on your day off or something like that? They're the things you have to weigh up. And so it's those little things which which I think are important during that that uh, really heavy fixture period. You hear, uh, you know, people on podcasts and people read about people saying, no, you've You've got to hit them straight after the game, so they're all on the same periodization plan. That's not always the case, in in my experience. Well, another thing I wanted to ask you, Darren, is in terms of you working with the players, are there any strategies you use with players? And this could be to do with anything. It could be to recovery or nutrition or out on the pitch that other coaches may look at and say, "Well, that's not 100% optimal." But 
you use it because you know that the players uh, will buy into it and you'll get the most out of it in that certain situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably one of the things that um, a, a strength – so in the AFL, for instance, you go Saturday to Saturday um, most of the time and in – you know, in teams that, that don't compete in Europe and things like that or don't go far in cups, it's the same sort of thing. You go Saturday to Saturday. In our scenario where, you know, we're coming up to the quarterfinals of the Europa League, so we've had to play a lot of games, um, we do a compromise loading session uh, after games in in the in the change rooms, and this is something that Shad and Barry have done really, really well, and set up well before I came to the club. And if you were a strength coach looking at that, you'd look at that loading and say that's not fantastic. And you'd look at post game and say maybe the players aren't putting in everything that they possibly could um, into you know the eccentric load that you put through the players and whatever exercise you might choose. Um, but it works, and it works really, really well because. At that time, the players are typically in the dressing room anyway. Um, they're typically not going anywhere because of traffic or because of flight schedules or because of whatever. And Barry and Shad in particular and Tom have developed such a good relationship with the players that they will do a, a modified loading session afterwards and that can count as a eccentric load uh, for the week. So my sort of... Australian sports scientist strength coach head tells me, oh, that's that's not quite right. They need a, a super maximal load and they need this and they need that. But in that scenario, that is easily the best um, that you could possibly give that person. Uh, another example is I had a, had a, a player, pretty um, or very experienced high-profile player in the past who if we had a Saturday-to-Saturday game, uh, my tendency, especially coming off, say, four weeks of, um, say, three game weeks, that Saturday to Saturday is like a godsend, but he would say, no, 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 you're going to smash me on that Wednesday or that Thursday. I need you to give me a game hit. And at first I said no and literally dragged him off the training ground kicking and screaming. Then that weekend he performed poorly and just said, I'm telling you, I need to be in that rhythm of exposure. So the next time this happens, either you do it or I'm going to go home and run. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's what we did. One, one final example, which, again, a, a lead footballer at a previous club, um, he called this his deal with the devil. And every morning he'd get up and do a five-kilometer run every morning. And I mean every morning including morning of the game. Now, this guy is uh, an international and elite, but he felt like that was his mental discipline to get up and go for a five-kilometre jog every morning. So whether he got home at you know 4 a.m. from a big night, he would get up and go for that jog. And I caught him, literally walked out the front of my street and, and saw him doing it and just said, well, what are you doing? And he came in, sat down and said, listen, mate, Listen, Burjo, this is what I do. It's got me to this level. I'm like, okay, all right. I'll do that with you. Um, as in I'll be be comfortable in the knowledge that you do that. But um, there may be an occasion where I, I say to you, don't. And I think he, he respected that because there were a few times where I'd text him and say, mate, not tomorrow, and he didn't. 
but you add that to his other load and and I guess a lot of sports scientists or fitness coach might freak out a little bit, but given this player had reached international level by doing that, and that was his mental sort of discipline, who might have stopped him? And that, there comes the argument, is is the psychology and the mindset of the player much yeah. more important than the physiology sometimes? Because if, it, if they do feel they're in the right state to go into a game and they have done things that aren't necessarily optimal, but they do feel sharp and they're ready for it, then you could argue that, like you said, that sometimes you, you've got to sort of let that slide, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. So with that as well, the sort of the flip on that, what are some of the um, mistakes or what are some strategies that you've tried um, like using or, or forcing upon players that haven't necessarily worked or players haven't bought into? Uh, well, there's been a bunch of mistakes that I've made um, are things like uh, doing things like CK with a group that was that was not really ready to do it and I just forced them to do it and I just got massive kickback and massive, um, uh, I guess, non-respect from the players to that and I just kept forcing CK because I'd read a couple of articles that it was a great measure in its early days. This is going back probably nine or ten years. Um, so uh, that was a that was a big one for me. Um, really disrespecting in, in the early days um, the I guess the genetic uh, profile of players. So um, by that I mean um, things like skin folds, having the same skin fold standard for everybody, you know, everybody must be under some of 50 or some of 60 and, and that's really unfair. It's like, it's like saying to players, uh, every player must be above 14 in a beat test. You know, you just, you just can't, genetically it's just impossible for some players to get there. So, um, so working with players on their, there are an individual testing scores, which I certainly didn't do in, in my early days. Um, I remember going to see, uh, spending a whole bunch of time with a really famous Australian horse trainer, um, and that meant getting up at sort of 3 a.m. and driving out to watch him put his horses through the paces, and that was sort of perfect physiology um, in that he could tell me that if he bumps a horse treadmill up by one kilometre an hour, he could get a heart rate response on this particular horse of five beats per minute and me sort of saying, right, that's what I'm doing and trying to apply that to players without um, taking into account individual traits and stress levels and sleep levels and all those sorts of things. Uh, I mentioned earlier making way too many mistakes with data um, and, and obsessing over that, literally telling coaches if they went over one or two minutes of a session that they they destroyed this player because the session was, you told me you do ten minutes and and it's a twelve minute session, um, so losing my my hair and my temper um, over that. Um, so, uh, how long have you got, Ben? I could keep going on with the mistakes. That, you know, you just um, and but hopefully you learn. And that was one of the advantages of going back and, and doing a lot of conditioning with really amateur players is, you know, without being disrespectful, the mistakes that you make at an amateur level aren't as, aren't as crucial. Certainly falling for sales pitches on the latest technology and the latest device that will, that will cure everything. Um, the, in the early days of AFL sort of rubbing 
bizarre solutions into players' knees and all that sort of stuff, which is fine. And, you know, we all know about the placebo effect, but when you run out of that solution uh, and the player thinks that they rely on it, um, that, that can be an issue. So, um, yeah, there's a few. And, and just finally, Dan, because I don't want to take up your whole evening because we have, we have had a good chat now and, uh, and I appreciate your time. So um, how does your role differ under different managers? So you've obviously worked under a few different managers now. So how does your role differ? Yeah, that, that's, that's something that um, is, is pretty tough to learn unless it happens to you. And that's one of the advantages I've had. I've never followed a manager around, which might be telling me something, but I had um, four managers in, in the less than three years that I was with Liverpool, one that I, I didn't even meet um, because he got sacked before I got there. Um, and and obviously at Arsenal in 20 months, we've had two managers. Um, and in my time in the AFL, I had a, had a few different coaches they're called out there. So, how does the role differ? Well, this year, for example, um, we've had a Spanish manager come in at a place that's had the same manager for 22 years. Um, it's It's been a really tough learning experience for us all, a good learning experience, but um, to learn a complete different culture, a um, to, to overcome language issues early on, um, to... Uh, work with staff that had been brought in by the manager, you know, fitness coach, video analyst, goalkeeping coach, two assistant coaches. So um, I, I look at that opportunity as an opportunity to learn and I've loved learning from a, a whole new different way of, of, excuse me, of doing things. So I, from day one, literally saw it as an opportunity to learn and to learn a new way of doing things. So how does a job change? You're in a lot more conversations. I'm using Google Translate a lot um, and you're you're adapting your own uh, beliefs to someone who's been pretty successful um, or very successful in their their coaching career and, and I'd spend a year with Arsene and Arsene's coaching group um, sort of gaining their respect hopefully and gaining their trust and implementing, being able to implement some of um, what what I did lay it on top of what, what's been successful for us then and now it's the same thing you know it's it's gaining the trust of the manager uh, working on relationships while demonstrating competence is is what you're doing so the job changes um, purely from a relationship point of view and you probably have to expend well you do have to expend a lot more effort to get your um, views and your philosophies across to to um somebody who comes in with a slightly different philosophy. The management of the staff, um, which is part of the current role that I have, um, doesn't change because the staff is the same. Um, uh, the staff that we had uh, had with Arsene were fantastic and the staff that we have with Unai are, are fantastic also. So the management of the staff doesn't change. It's, it's more the um, learning a new philosophy, learning to anticipate you know, when when um, the manager might want to push and might want to pull certain players and, and trying to adapt to that. Oh, that's quality, mate. Uh, Darren, have you got any um, speaking engagements or any anything like that coming up? Um, yeah, the one of the really good conferences 
um, or probably one of the best around, is the um, is the Isokinetic Conference. Uh, so I'm speaking uh, at that, um, which is at Wembley this year, which is good and bad. Barcelona is always a great place to visit where it's been the last few years. Um, but uh, we're, we're local this year at Wembley, which is in late April. So um, that's always a, a, a really good event. Um, and uh, I'm speaking at the uh, to US Olympic, Winter Olympic. Massive thank you to Darren for coming on the podcast. It was great to have him on. You can go and follow him on Twitter at Darren Burgess 25, the number 25. I think that some of the biggest takeaways for me were that when he spoke about data not being everything, that was something that Tom Allen also spoke about at our network meeting at Villa Park, that they do have access to a lot of data. Um, they, they record a lot of things. Obviously, they're monitoring a lot of things all the time, but it isn't everything. And a lot of practitioners think that it is the be-all and end-all, but it does come back to the softer skills. So that was really good to hear from Darren. His Burjo rating, so the RPE that he spoke about for the session intensity. So again, not just to do with the data, but what he actually sees during the session and how he can rate the session just based on what he sees. And then also recovery. So I know he used the phrase recovery is is overrated, um, but he also went into depth on what he meant by that in terms of it needs to be tailored to the club, the player and the situation. So it's an important thing to, to understand that it's not always a case of just using this protocol or the next protocol. It's that you need to take the situation, the player and the club into consideration before you put something into play. So that was really great to hear from Darren on and get all his views and experience across the years that he's worked in football and other sports as well. So a massive thank you for him uh, for coming on. Please get in touch and share this episode. I think there was some great information on there. So let us know how you found it. Give us some feedback. You can drop us an email, mail at footballfitfed.com. You can also get us on Twitter at footballfitfed and Instagram at footballfitfed. So please share this episode, share it with people, tag people in who you may think will like the episode uh, with Darren and it will help us get quality guests like Darren on in the future. And we're also available on Spotify now as well. So um, you guys that are on Android can also listen on Spotify too. So um, that's been something that's, that's some feedback that I've had on the podcast. So if you do have any other feedback, please get in touch. It'll be great to hear from you. And we will speak to you again next week.